Let us pray. Our Creator, we do give you thanks for our life, for the days you have given us, and for those who have gone ahead of us as a light, who have caught the Christ flame, who have burned for what is right. Give us strength to love each other. Give us strength to love all our neighbors. Let us have no debt but the debt to love. Speak to us this morning by your Spirit. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Raise your hand if you like debt, you like being in debt. Most of us, I think, probably hate that. Or even the feeling of being indebted to someone. But why is that? That we hate even just the feeling of being indebted. Seems to me in societies that live closer to the land, there's kind of an assumption that some sort of indebtedness will be passed around as people take turns providing for what's needed. Providing for each other. When one has abundance, it's shared. And it's expected that everyone will do this. Everyone will share when they have more. Now, please, no, I'm not speaking of the very real burden of getting caught in a financial debt that is unmanageable. But more of how we think about owing each other something in our relationships together as a community. I wonder if, uh, if it's our false sense of autonomy that makes us recoil from feeling indebted to one another. I read recently about uh, the pathological individualism of Christianity in this country. Do we hate feeling indebted to another person because we're actually in denial about our constant need to depend on one another? And, of course, on God for everything that's really most important in life. In a way, we're always indebted to others as we rely on these interconnected systems and relationships and skills we don't have and on the earth itself and on our creator for food, for shelter, and for love. So I wonder if it's possible that we could be always in each other's debt in this way and in God's debt and yet be joyfully free. In fact, is that perhaps how we are most free? In this chapter in Romans, Paul has just gotten through a very controversial explanation of how to relate to governing powers, and I won't dive into that today, but I imagine many of you are familiar with this. And then turns around to say that the only real debt we have, the only real debt we have, and our primary responsibility is to love. Now he's just talked about paying what is due, paying taxes, all of these other things, 
But it's as if he wants to make sure that nobody misses what the main point really is. Just before this, <coughs> if you have your Bibles and want to turn to um, Romans thirteen 7, you'll see that's the verse just before the passage that was read. This thing about paying obligations, where it says pay to all what is due, it could be said pay to all the obligations that are owed to them. And then immediately uses the same word to say, have no obligation to anyone but to love. Wow. And really, that's plenty. If, if our, even if our very only obligation is to love everyone, well, we could all spend the rest of our lives working that out. And may we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then to emphasize the point, you see he goes on to say, love fulfills the law. This is the primary command, and one that we need to return to when we get distracted by our desire to, for example, win an argument. And he's about to get to that. In the church in Rome, there were disagreements about what Christians needed to do to be a Christian, Does everyone need to follow the same dietary restrictions? In the next chapter, he's about to spend a lot of time on that. We wouldn't want to make those weak vegetarians stumble, so we need to pay some attention to that. There were disagreements about paying taxes, about how to relate to the government, which is why he just spent a bunch of time on that. It's a good thing we don't have any kinds of arguments about these kinds of things, you know, like welcoming people who are different. That's also in in the following chapter. And yet, in the center of all that, he's taking time to say that nothing is more important than this debt to love one another. And not just one another in the community, but to love the other. When it says, the one who loves another, it could say, the one loving the other has fulfilled the law. So he's elevating this above our obligations as citizens of a particular country, above our compulsive need to try to resolve all of our differences. And if we focus on continuing to weave this fabric of love in our community, we will be less likely to do harm to our neighbors. And we will live out all the rest of the law in the process. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now, of course, none of us has a perfect record of doing no harm. And so going directly to each other when one has wronged another is one way that we live in love. In our Matthew passage, Jesus is quite detailed. The instructions are very specific. And he's bold in giving the community this power to change the shape of their relationships with each other once they've made a vigorous effort to try to restore or regain the relationship with someone. But what is the impulse that drives all of these instructions? What God is always doing? Making things right. Repairing. Restoring all things. 
shalom, well-being, right relationship. That's behind this instruction that Jesus is giving. Clearly this is core to who he is and core to the heart of God. And so it makes sense that Jesus is saying something that maybe seems mundane, this nitty-gritty about the details of community life. It makes sense that he would say this when he's about to head to Jerusalem and toward his death. He wants to be sure that the overriding divine impulse is clear, putting love at the center, making clear that our love for one another and our love for all and our particular care for those who find themselves to be weak and vulnerable, that this will be the marker that will let everyone know, oh, those are the people who follow Jesus. These are the people of God. And even if we can't restore the relationship in these attempts, we are to treat people as a tax collector and a Gentile. Which, as you've probably thought of before, as you've thought of this passage, which seems strange at first, if we're imitating Jesus, what does it mean to teach, to treat people as Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, it it would mean we'd eat together as a baseline, because Jesus certainly did. And sharing food in this way would certainly be a sign of love. And so even when we've made this strong and sincere effort to win over our sister or brother, and we haven't been able to, there's still not a complete break, and the debt to love remains. Love does no harm to a neighbor. I've been thinking about Betty Fry's question, what does love require? Especially as I think also of, as I believe Todd might have quoted last week, Cornell West saying, if justice is what love looks like in public, if justice is what love looks like in public, then what does it mean to pay this debt of love? Of course, love has to be specific and visible. This past week, this seemed especially poignant as DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, for folks who have come to this country as children without papers, uh, was repealed What does it mean to do no harm to our neighbors this week? And I was thinking particularly about a young man named Adrian, who I had a chance to spend some time with in Orlando um, at the Mennonite Convention this past summer. He's a member of Philadelphia Praise Center, one of two vibrant Indonesian Mennonite congregations in South Philly. And I got to know him a little bit uh, during my time in Franconia Conference. Adrian has become vocal lately about being uh, one of these people who came here as a kid, um, not having documentation for being here and, 
and someone who would certainly benefit from the DREAM Act. He's been in this country since he was about 10 years old. He's an only child of parents who came because they thought that their son might have a better life here. His parents are also still undocumented and amazingly still here. Adrian has now finished at Eastern University and he works as a legal aide in Chester County. He's dating someone who's from Malaysia who attends Raleigh Mennonite and she went to Messiah. And now his paperwork, as of this week, his paperwork will expire in 2019. I find myself asking, in light of this, in light of the violence we have seen in our streets, what does love require? If love does no wrong to a neighbor... How do we move toward this primary obligation, this one debt that we should always owe? There are some clues in the second part of our Romans text. Those of you who really don't like any mixture of metaphors might be a little bit in for a bumpy ride when you first look at this text, but lest lest we get bogged down in, in the variety of things that are here, Paul is naming a Kairos moment. We don't see it immediately, but when he says, you know what time it is, the Roman church would have, would have noticed that and understood that to mean we are in a time that is filled with potential for divine saving and renewing. That there's a moment before us that God can use for immense good. And so in light of that, he's saying the night is, is long past. The night is almost over. Not quite over. It's not over yet. The day hasn't come. But it's coming. And so the church is to prepare for this new dawn. Wake up. Rise from sleep. This has resonance with some of the ways that Jesus was speaking. Keep awake. Keep watch. And in light of that, what what should we put on as we anticipate that the day is coming? We have this familiar notion in Scripture, this familiar movement of taking off and putting on. And this also would have been connected for the church at that time with baptism. So this is also Paul reminding folks, what did you commit, what are you committing to as you put on Christ? Putting off quarreling and jealousy. Putting off all those things that we get distracted by among ourselves when our obligation, our primary obligation is to be loving to be active in our love. And what are we putting on? Well, in the, in the text, you don't see it immediately, but it's, it's battle gear, it's armor. The armor of light, tucked into these chapters that are full of non-retaliation and this debt to love, 
is this armor of light, this preparation to be overcoming evil or conquering evil with good. And so perhaps it's not even too much to say that we are asked to be soldiers of love, to put on Christ, to put on truth-telling and honorable discourse, This is a reorienting of all of our thinking and our perceiving that your way of living is to be from a profoundly different reference point than the culture that surrounds us. To be armed with light. To be armed with the light of Christ. This is a different way from the way our culture has engaged in the battles we have seen raging. Often it's, it's about fighting for rights. But love knows something deeper. I received a, a poem that is in a, a Mennonite, um, a collection of... Um, indigenous poems that is being used by, uh, by Mennonite Church Canada as a way to move toward reconciliation between um, indigenous folks in Canada and white settlers. And their, um, this approach to love, this, this way of loving that is exemplified here was, was deeply challenging. This is again written by um, an indigenous author, a poet. The old ones say, Creator writes your rights on the pages of your life. Read them in the stars. Listen to the voice of the earth when the snow melts and the soil exhales. She will help you understand. You have no rights, but the right to choose love or choose fear. This kind of open-handedness to say, mm, no, not rights. We don't, we're not asking for rights, but we're choosing love This kind of open-handedness from people who have very literally been pushed aside and shoved into a corner for centuries should give us pause in our sincere desire to learn what love requires. To choose love in a context of fear and retaliation. Is it possible to hold these things together, this taking courageous stands for justice, and also to be open-handed? The kind of courage that will be asked of us in the days to come, I'm not even sure. But even if we only have the desire for the kind of courage it takes to continue to pay this debt of love, and to be open-handed in our loving, even when it costs us a great deal. 
to be both courageous in standing for justice and continuing to open our hearts. Even if we can only desire this or desire the desire for it, let us pray for that. Let us pray for the desire for that kind of courage and let us pray for that courage. Whether, whether it might mean moving into a very difficult forgiveness or letting go of a hurt that we have been holding on to, whether it means, as Todd said, listening to those closest to the pain, whether it might mean listening to those closest to the pain more carefully or with greater endurance than we have done in the past, or if it means putting our bodies next to those whose bodies are most severely threatened in this moment, in this time when God's salvation is still near, May we continue, may we continue to ask what does love require in this moment in our land and in our time. May we continue with much prayer to learn what love requires in our daily living. And may we find the joy in being always indebted to one another and in paying this debt of love.